Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tang. Today, a surge in COVID-19 cases hits a health system under massive pressure. Previously, when we had a crisis, we knew that there would be an end to it um, and you had a sense of hope, I guess. My colleagues now are, are not having that same sense of hope. We will take you live to the Pacific, where tensions over China are playing out at the Pacific Islands Forum. And the government's three waters reforms stemmed from the Hawke's Bay contamination crisis. So why don't the local Hawke's Bay mayors support the proposed changes? The uh, central government model has actually set aside less money for investment in Napier. It's a third of the money that we're already committing. We'll have that story for you shortly, but we begin this morning with the state of our healthcare system. Experts believe we are experiencing a COVID second wave, with a surge in infections and the new BA5 variant fast sweeping Aotearoa. But it comes at a time when our health system is under massive strain, with the flu, winter illnesses and staffing shortages across the board. Now, instead of interviewing politicians and officials, this morning we want to show you what it's like on the primary health front line. You might remember last year when Delta hit, I joined the doctors at Papakura Marae in South Auckland. Well, this week, I returned. Oh, yes, that's a bit red, isn't it? Forget mere discontent. At the Papakura Marae Health Centre, this is the winter of despair. You know, this is probably the simplest question I've ever started an interview with. How are you doing? Um, I'm tired. Um, uh, it's a different kind of tiredness from when we last saw you, when we were full on with the COVID response. Um, it's more uh, managing people off sick, managing the flu season, and unfortunately now managing the COVID upswing. Literally as we arrived at the clinic this week, the situation was getting worse. One of our GPs has rat test has come back positive as he's come into the clinic so he's had to leave he had a fully booked pallet with over 30 patients to see so that'll come to me and the nurse practitioner for the day today it's just dr ma teddy harwood and one other colleague so how many patients will you see today so as a result of seeing normally 30 we're up to seeing distributing 90 patients um, between two of us so we'll be here for a long day, I think. You've been through crises before. Can you remember a time that compares to this? Mm. So I think the time that we're experiencing right now is a different type of crisis. Um, and it's hard to put my finger on what makes it different. When we were in the middle of the COVID response at the beginning and end of last year, um, it w we felt like we were doing something. There was some light at the end of the tunnel. We were doing everything that we could to prevent COVID spreading um, from debilitating people in, in their lives. Um, and the workforce felt very united in that response, as did our community. But there's been a change um, since then, I think people feel that they're a bit tired of COVID. Um, we've been very sick and unwell and had lost a lot of staff who haven't been able to come into work or they've made the decision to leave health altogether because it's just got too overwhelming for them. How many house visits you got to do today? I think 12. When we were last with Dr Martiri Harwood in November last year, she was making house visits to patients with COVID-19. Your oxygen sets are 98%. At the time, New Zealand was recording a few hundred cases a day. Papakura was the front line. Since then, how many staff have left? 
Yeah, so we've lost a number of staff since um, the end of last year. Um, two of our GPs decided to move back to their own rohe, where they were from, due to family reasons, and so that's understandable. I think COVID maybe um, brought to the fore the fact that they were wanting to make some lifestyle decisions, um, and so that was understandable, and we thought, okay, we'll start advertising for another GP, um, but that's been the case across the country. So my understanding is that there are over 800 ads for GPs across Aotearoa at the moment, so we're all struggling to find someone. Mm. Um, and in, in addition to the loss of GPs, we've also lost um, a, a nurse practitioner, um, who was here, she's decided to focus on her own business and then our nurses are wanting to do their own training and develop themselves as well. So it's, yeah, a bit short across, across the board in our clinic. A bit short. <laughs> <laughs> so how do those staff shortages here end up affecting other parts of the healthcare system? How does it affect hospital, for example? Yeah, so um, when people can't get in to see their GP, we've been saying to them, unfortunately, we've got no appointments today. We can book you in a couple of weeks. In that two weeks, things might deteriorate and they might have to present acutely to hospital, so, and that's happened. Um, or we've said to them, can you go and see the after-hours clinic? But they've also been very overwhelmed and not been able to see as many people either. And so they've had to then say to them, can you wait again? Which puts the load back onto the hospital. Um, and so we've seen people who are um, uh, not able to get into us getting COVID for a second time. Um, and unfortunately, the second time has hit them a bit harder than the first time and they've ended up in hospital acutely because they haven't been able to get in to see us. We might be able to manage it at home, but it's got too far along and they've ended up in hospital with pneumonia. So these are the sorts of things that we're starting to see. In addition to that, it's just the business as usual things. We can't screen for cancers. We can't manage their diabetes as well. We're doing a lot of prescriptions over the phone without seeing people. Um, and again, they're saying they've waited too long to see us and presented acutely to emergency departments. So I really feel for our hospital colleagues as well. The Health Minister, Andrew Little, says they've been surprised by some of the COVID-19 numbers, but that overall, even though it's under strain, the system is coping. What do you make of those comments? Um, I'd have tend to disagree. I think um, we're coping because we're filling in for each other and we, you know, in our heart of hearts, we want to be there for our patients in our communities and do what we can um, and support our colleagues. Um, but I'm hearing time and time again, people saying, I'm tired, I'm feeling burnt out. Um, it has made me rethink my career choice um, and whether I want to reduce hours in this career, if not make it a total career change, actually. At Papakura Marae, they're dealing with the winter surge by running a drive-through GP clinic. They're seeing all the normal winter stuff, colds and the flu. And yes, in the last few weeks, a surge in COVID-19 infections. We've had that first wave. Um, it's now swept across the rest of the country. I wonder if Papakura is going to be the first place that we start to see this upswing in COVID cases, reinfections. You're already seeing some reinfections. We're already seeing reinfections here um, for people living out of community, but equally in our workforce as well. So we've had staff go off with second infection. How are those COVID-19 reinfections affecting your patients? Yeah, so internationally we've been told that the second infection is 
tends not to be as bad as the first time, but that hasn't been the case for us here. And it might reflect the environment that our um, community is living in, um, reflect the level of comorbidities or other health conditions, but we've seen people have to go into hospital with pneumonia with the second infection. So it's not something to be taken lightly. We've also had a huge number of people with long COVID. So again, internationally, evidence says maybe 10%. We're seeing probably 30% of our patients having long COVID, not being able to go back to work, having to stay away from school for much longer than they would have expected. And again, that's put a huge burden on us as well. 30%? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's... I'm not sure that we're set up for long COVID in our health system either. I think we've been so uh, much focused on that acute care um, and trying to get people better and staying out of the health, the, the hospital system, I guess. But, you know, I've been asking, what are we doing around long COVID? We can't have these people coming into hospital appointments. What can we be doing in primary care? Um, and it is very much supportive at the moment. Um, and just continuing with that message, be kind to yourself as you, as you recover. Mm. But, you know, it would be great to get some more support around that. Dr Martiri Harwood joined her colleagues in signing an open letter from scientists and public health experts asking the government to do more to manage COVID-19. When I was last here, Aotearoa was recording about 200 cases a day. Now, of course, we are recording 10,000 cases a day, we have deaths in the double digits most days, but we have fewer restrictions. What do you make of that shift? I just, it's interesting, I don't see that same level of care um, and COVID prevention in our community. I really see people wearing their masks um, out in public um, and even in enclosed places like the dairy or the, the petrol station, I kind of feel like I might be the only one in my mask. Um, at this time and um, I really want to encourage people that to, to continue that, especially over this flu season and if we do start to see this upswing in COVID numbers, you know, maybe we do need to be focusing on those pu public health messages again. Should the government be doing more when it comes to COVID-19 restrictions? I'd love to see some sort of response to the COVID restrictions. I get on one hand people are over it, um, that they feel that you know they've given up so much of their lives, it's had a huge burden on them, um, but they were listening to the experts for a long time and it did us well. Um, I think the health system is now feeling the pressure again with everything else happening as a result of the impact of COVID. So I would love to see some sort of leadership or um, political response to what's happening. I, I don't know what that is. And I'd love to have the time to be able to sit and think and contribute to that. But I'm, I'm so busy in my day-to-day -day work at the moment that mm. I just can't. One of the policy debates at the moment is over our immigration settings. We have a desperate shortage of nurses. Under the new immigration settings, nurses who move here have to wait two years before they can apply for residency, but some people think that should change, they should be able to apply for residency immediately. What do you think? I think having the, those sorts of um, policies in place would be fantastic. I'm hearing from my colleagues internationally, New Zealand is attractive to um, internationally trained staff and I think nurses need to be the priority. I think um, we're so well short, thousands and thousands of nurses short here in Aotearoa and it would just make a huge difference across the health system and then of course doctors. 
At Papakura Marae Medical Centre, they know there is no such thing as a quick fix. But the staff here are desperate. You know, you said something to me on the phone the other day. You said, you've seen plenty of crises before, but this is the first time when it feels like there's no hope. Yeah, it's interesting. We, I was talking to some colleagues the other day about this and we were saying previously when we had a crisis we knew that there would be an end to it um, and you had a sense of hope, I guess. My colleagues now are, are not having that same sense of hope and um, are feeling tired and burnt out and wondering if, you know, what is going to be the solution? We don't even have time to think about creating something to address this. We're just treading water at the moment. I'd love to be able to create some hope um, for us um, in these dark times. Uh, well, on behalf of everyone, kia kaha. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Do you have enough paracetamol? Hamol? One patient down, just 89 to go. Dr Ma Teddy Harwood and the team at Papakura Marae Health Centre. After the break on Q&A, how will the China debate play out at the Pacific Islands Forum? And how's this for creativity <laughs> and illustrating the climate change threat? Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A. The Pacific Islands Forum is our region's most important diplomatic event, and this year's forum is shaping up as one of the most significant in decades, with China on the rise and climate change threatening some islands' existence. Pacific foreign ministers have been meeting in recent days ahead of the leaders arriving, and One News Pacific correspondent Barbara Drever is on the ground in the Fijian capital of Suva. Tēnā koe, Barb, thanks for being with us. Barb, I know there has been speculation this Hola. year that the forum as a whole could fall apart. What sense are you getting about the state of relationships between different countries? Yes, well, the, the word that I've been hearing the most of from uh, Pacific Island leaders and officials is hopeful that the 18 member countries will stay, will be united. But there's, I can tell you for an absolute fact, there is no guarantee of that. Um, and that is going to be a huge problem here at that forum. It's what the Pacific Islands Forum is all about. Um, of course, what is at stake is power and when the stability of the region is, is under threat um, and regionalism is under threat then we've got a real problem. We have of course Jack heard from 18 from some of the uh, Micronesian countries, there are five of them who threatened to leave for years they've felt undervalued and sidelined. Now a deal was stitched together just last month to keep them in the forum but my understanding is not all of them have signed this agreement and mm. that's going to be discussed here at this forum. Why does the forum matter so much? Well, that, that's a very good question. It's because as a, a block of 18 countries, they're so much more powerful together on the international stage than as individuals. So for the individual Pacific countries who might be isolated, it does form an area of protection. But also um, on the international stage, geopolitically, they have, a lot of, they have a lot of weight behind them. For example, New Zealand got onto the Security Council in 2015, was voted on by predominantly votes from Pacific 
Pacific neighbours. So we count on the Pacific Forum working as well. Also there's a, something called the Blue Pacific uh, Strategy and this is for uh, the 2050 year 2050 they want all of the Pacific nations to be as one to act as one continent now if um, one of the countries is not part of the forum um, this year that will weaken that and it also weakens this is a, a geopolitical um, weight yeah Barb how much is China and its growing interests in the region looming over this year's forum <sighs> Well, it's definitely looming. I mean, there's just no getting away from that. While most of the island countries have a very good relationship with China, except for four Pacific countries, um, when you mention the word security, um, then you've got a problem. And for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, um, there is the fear that the Pacific could become militarised by China. We've already got that Chinese agreement with the Solomon Islands. And so countries like the US, uh, New Zealand, Australia particularly disturbed by this um, and so for Pacific countries they are worried that they're going to be collateral damage in this geopolitical tussle. Now so big is the China issue Jack I can tell you that the post forum dialogue which happens after the formal meetings and that's between countries like China and the US and Pacific leaders that's off the table now it's now not happening. Right okay from China then to climate change and how much is the conversation around climate mm. change shifting from prevention to mitigation for those lower lying Pacific countries? It's mitigation, it's absolutely about that for most of the Pacific Island countries. Now, you only need to look at Kiribati and Tuvalu. They've had uh, big drought problems. Fresh water has had to be flown into those countries. Um, and when you've got things like that, along with um, changing weather patterns, uh, more cyclones, what's going to happen with those small island countries is that they will become unlivable before they're swamped with seawater. And that's the issue that many of them are facing now. Tuvalu has come up, now looking at the worst case scenario. How can we deal with that? And that's the reality for many of these small island countries. Right, Barb, a big few days ahead. Love your work. Thank you so much. That is One News Pacific correspondent Barbara Drever in Suva. Now, we want to highlight one Pacific nation that Barb just mentioned in particular, the tiny island nation of Tuvalu. For Tuvalu, climate change is very much an existential threat, and Foreign Minister Simon Coffey gained international headlines for delivering a speech to an international climate summit knee-deep in water to symbolise rising sea levels. Tuvalu is also one of the few countries anywhere in the world that still maintains diplomatic relations with Taiwan over China. Yesterday, Barbara Drever sat down with Tuvalan Foreign Minister Simon Coffey. Well, there are a number of um, issues that are uh, affecting Tuvalu and, and the Pacific. The, the geopolitics as well in the region, uh, we understand it's uh, really intensifying. And uh, so I think that we're at a critical time uh, for us to come together. It makes a big difference when you, you're speaking face to face, and especially when you're discussing very hard issues. How do we position ourselves and respond to the geopolitical uh, competition that's ongoing right now? How do we uh, re-emphasize again the importance of climate change as, as, a, as, a, as an issue that should be on the agenda all the time? Is New Zealand a strong enough climate change partner for Tuvalu? 
Well, I, th I think there's, there's always more that, that can be done. I, I, I think that's, uh, that's the message, I guess, I, I, I want to put forward um, to New Zealand, Australia, and, and some of the, the bigger countries. Um, Tuvalu and, and other countries that are, that are low-lying uh, are facing the full brunt of, of climate change, uh, although we contributed very little to, to the problem. And so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of justice as well, that uh, some of these bigger countries that are contributing to the, to the problem uh, need to, to, to provide the support. Um, you know, the, the, there are many projects that they could, could do with, with, with more funding, um, like building sea walls, protecting our, our coastal areas, reclaiming land. Uh, and, and that's something that we, we hear a lot as well with, with countries like Tuvalu uh, in the, on the international plane, uh, advocating for uh, greater flexibility in, in, in finances coming to the, uh, to, to, to the region. So more cash and investment from New Zealand wouldn't go amiss. Exactly, that's right. Tuvalu has been looking into the future in a scenario where we are forced to relocate or our islands are fully submerged. Um, do we still consider ourselves a state? Can we have the right to vote uh, in some of these international uh, bodies? Do we have claims to our, uh, our EEZ and the resources in our waters? Uh, so we're looking long term, uh, and we, we want to ensure that we find legal avenues now uh, to be able to secure our, our statehood under international law. Obviously, this, this never happened in the history because we've never had a country disappear because of climate change. Uh, so it's a totally new area under international law that Tuvalu is, is pioneering. And uh, we're, we're hoping that other countries come on board as well to, um, to accept this. How important is regionalism, given the global uh, geopolitics that's happening, like countries like China making a big play in the region? Uh, regionalism is, is critical. I think maintaining the, the unity of the, uh, of the Pacific is, is critical to, uh, to be able to navigate through the, uh, the challenges that we see uh, ahead of us. Um, we are only stronger together uh, as we are uh, isolated. Um, but obviously this is not the first time that we've seen um, outside powers showing interest in, in the Pacific. In fact, history would, would tell us that uh, we have some very dark experiences uh, with that. Uh, Tuvalu, the island that I, I live on, we, uh, about half of our population was taken during the slave trade to work in, uh, in, in Peru. Um, interest in phosphate in, in, in the region, uh, nuclear testing. I mean, there are numerous examples of, of uh, how outside for, uh, powers have, have really affected the Pacific. So I think what we really need to, to, to do now is, is look at those experiences and, and say we, we don't want to walk down that path again. We need to be smarter than we were uh, many years ago and to really position ourselves um, correctly so that we're securing our future and the future of our future generations. How important is recognising Taiwan for Tuvalu? Because you'd be one of a few countries in the yeah. Pacific that do, right? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, there are only four countries in the Pacific right now that uh, recognise uh, Taiwan. Um, and I think globally there's, there's 14 countries. And so we, we are in the, in the minority. Uh, particularly in the South Pacific, we're, we're the only uh, country right now that, that recognizes uh, Taiwan. So um, obviously that, that there is always pressure there uh, on us um, from, from China and uh, to, 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 make, to make that switch. Uh, but I think for us it's important that we, um, that we are clear on our, on our position. Taiwan has been a friend of Tuvalu since 1979. I think they're, they're one of the, the very first uh, diplomatic partners that we, we had uh, when we became independent. 
so we, we value that. Um, under our culture, we value relationships, uh, genuine relationship and trust. Uh, those are values that are, are very dear to, 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 to our wounds. Uh, but we are, we are living in a time where the, those values are being challenged uh, and it's important that we need to continue to, um, uh, to, sh to shine the light, I guess. But why not switch to China? Wouldn't they perhaps give you more? Yes, well this brings me to, to how I, I think the Pacific should be moving uh, towards. Um, you know, we became independent in, in 1978. And, and, and uh, as much as we appreciate the, the support from partners to, to help Tuvalu, I think the nation has to mature to, to a place where we, we're not so dependent on, on, on outside help. Uh, because I think it, it really defeats the, the purpose of becoming independent, to put yourself in another position to be dependent on, on others. Uh, and so that's why I feel that, uh, that the Taiwan-China issue should not be a major issue for Tuvalu if we're looking at it from, uh, from that perspective, that we're, we're, this is just part of the journey we've become, we want to move towards a position where we are self-sufficient, we're able to, to um, support ourselves. And, and I, I hope that one day Tuvalu can be a, a donor uh, and help other countries as, as well. And so I think that's the, the attitude that we need to take, uh, as, not just for Tuvalu, but I think for the, for the Pacific as a whole. In that way, we are in greater control of, of what uh, happens in, in the region and the direction that we want to move towards. That is Tuvalu Foreign Minister Simon Coffey speaking to One News Pacific correspondent Barbara Drever. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Act leader David Seymour is here shortly. Plus, thousands of locals were poisoned in the Havelock North water crisis. But the local mayors oppose three waters and their reasoning it might surprise you. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. You know, there was a really extraordinary moment you might have missed this week, where the director of the FBI and the director of Britain's MI5 intelligence agency held a joint press conference and very publicly called out a common enemy. We consistently see that it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long-term threat to our economic and national security. And by our, I mean both of our nations along with our allies in Europe and elsewhere. And elsewhere. Hmm. Of course, in the South Pacific, debate over Chinese influence is top of mind as well. Pacific nations have been divided this year over China's expanding influence in the region. The Associate Minister of Foreign Affairs, Opito William Siwa, has just returned from the Pacific Islands Forum in Suva, where he's been meeting with foreign ministers. Morena. Morena, Jake. What role did China play in your discussions this week? <laughs> uh, look, I mean, it was part of the discussion. Um, people need to understand China's been around a long, long time. They are one of our development partners. We, we have a respectful relationship, but we also have free and frank relationship with them. Um, there is a big difference in terms of how we work in the region as opposed to the way that they do things. And so you've got to have those um, discussions about what's happening in the region. Um, but also, it's not just China. It's the behaviour of all the other world powers that come into the region. We are driven by the priorities of the Pacific yeah. and, and our aim alongside all the other members of the Pacific Island Forum is about stable, peaceful, prosperous, resilient uh, countries in the Pacific region. I think um, the interview that I saw with 
Simon Coffey for Tuvalu, I think there's a number of themes that he articulated mm -hmm. there that are deeply rooted in the history of this region and nations are wanting self-determination, wanting the Pacific way uh, to be adhered to. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that because he talked about regionalism mm. and he talked about the Pacific having greater power and greater strength mm. if it works in a united way. Yep. But the Pacific isn't united at the moment. We know that, and, and this is the change we've seen over yep. the last 12 months in particular, those tensions over China are really starting to play out. So how is that tension yeah. playing out between the different forum members? Oh, look, it doesn't help when um, members of the extended family interfere and interrupt mm. and attempt to supplant uh, existing infrastructure in the region. And so uh, in the meeting, there was unanimous, unanimous voices articulate about the need for the Pacific region mm. to stand together. Either countries navigate alone against the world superpowers or they stay together as one. And my, uh, uh, my remarks were about recognizing that we are family. Mm. And within that circle of families, you know, you've got uh, close mm. blood relations and those who are extended part of the family who have a long history here. And we've all got to find a way of ensuring that they know what our priorities are, they know what our values are, mm. and ask them to work with the Pacific Island Forum region. Now, we've still got a long, you know, in yeah. every family there are the uncles that you like and the aunties that uh, make a lot of noise, then don't do anything. Um, who, who and are the aunties? No, this, no, 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 who are the aunties in this, oh, in this analogy? I'm using this symbolism because <laughs> in that um, Pacific Island Forum, we recognise this. Right. I mean, this is the thing. Everyone says, yep, we've got to be united. Yes, we've all got shared values. We've all got to get along. Yep. But the fact of the matter is that we are seeing a split. We are yep. seeing some of the Pacific mm -hmm. countries choosing yep. to side with China, yep. the likes of the Solomon Islands, yep. and other countries mm -hmm. like Tuvalu saying, no, actually, we're going to take a different mm -hmm. path. So what is the end game? Yeah. And, how, and how is this actually yeah. playing out at the moment? Because you've been there in the yeah. room as these tensions play out. Well, look, out. Um, Minister Naimahuta had conversations with the Minister foreign affairs from Solomon Island when they were in Rwanda for the mm. Chogham meeting. And I followed through with that. I know Minister Manili from you know, several years back and I just said to him, mate, are you happy with the trouble that you're causing? <laughs> and how are you holding up? Um, because we, I needed to send that signal because we're going to be really free and frank with our uh, interventions on that mm. particular day. What did he say? Oh no, he, he smiled, um, you know, he was holding the line of, of a decision that they're making, being sovereign rights, but I said to reminded mm. uh, uh, all of the leaders here that the Pacific Island Forum already have the Pikatawa Declaration, right. where with anything to do with security, they call upon the members of the Pacific Island Forum, which is what we saw when the, the riots earlier with uh, New Zealand, Australia, mm. PNG, as well as Suva there. Let me ask. In the short term, are any other Pacific nations likely to sign a Solomon, Isles, uh, Solomon Islands style deal mm. with China? I don't know. You don't know? Mm. Shouldn't you know? Oh, look, in the conversations that I have had with um, members from the region, I did not get the sense that there were others. But it mm. doesn't prevent um, external world powers coming into the region and behaving in the way that they've always behave because there's another war going on at the international uh, arena, world of ideals. And, and so what we're saying 
to everyone that comes into the region, mm -hmm. our friends and foes, if you want to use that, is really to say to them, look, listen to the Pacific priorities. Listen to how we do mm -hmm. things. Use the infrastructure that's here. And we will continue to do that, whether it's China, whether it's the US or the UK or, or France or mm -hmm. any of the external partners that come into the region. Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta tested positive for COVID-19, mm -hmm. so has been unable to travel to Suva uh, she's, she's planning to travel in the next couple of days, I, I understand. She has faced some criticism for not spending enough time in the Pacific. Mm. Is that fair? No, it isn't. I mean, look, um, what you've seen with Australia and China do um, in upping their ante to get around the region, um, we've always been aware, being very, very close, mm. I'm in, in working with the region on the Polynesian Health Corridor and supporting the role of the vaccine that those um, interventions put the countries at risk. We weren't prepared to do that. We would travel when it's all safe. And, and we still plan on being able to, mm. um, to begin again our regular annual visits to the region. Simon Coffey said in that interview he'd like to see the likes of New Zealand mm. assisting smaller Pacific nations in climate change mitigation. Mm. Mm. Are you prepared to do that? Oh, absolutely. We announced... Um, last year, $1.3 billion. Our Prime Minister has said at least 50% of that is earmarked to the Pacific region. I think that money is about four times greater than previous triennial uh, funding. At the moment, MFAD is doing the consult consultation with all of those countries, and I've been around to all those ministers from Palau and Fiji mm. earlier and this week, and say, look, hurry up, let's look at the priorities, let's see what uh, things that we can do immediately, and let's look at what the long-term aims are. Simon Coffey identified um, a, 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 the reality for the Pacific region is, a, you know, on the one hand, they're preparing for the emergency that nobody wants, being inundated with rising seawater levels. On the other hand, um, in 2016, when I talked to the young people there, they all said in Tabalu and in Kiribati, we want the right to live on our own lands mm. and therefore mitigation, adaptation, we've got to figure out how do you continue protecting those homelands, but then start thinking about the future that nobody wants to talk about. What happens if those countries are underwater because of the refusal of the international community to act and act quickly? Sovereign rights, do they remain? Do they? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the United Nations is all about that, recognising self-determination, mm. and we support that. But those are complex issues, and the future also must include not only looking at the science, mm. but looking at our traditional knowledge. And my contribution in more recent meeting was really to emphasise how important our traditional knowledge is in finding solutions that are lasting and enduring um, in addressing some really complex issues. Should Aotearoa accept any residents of a nation in the Pacific Islands Forum who are forced to move because of rising sea levels? When we implemented the Pacific Access Category Quota some time ago, I think mm. under the Helen Clark government, allowing 75 from Tuvalu, from Kiribati, 250 from Tonga, this would Fiji. Be many more though, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. I think it was signalled then that was an anticipation to slowly open up the key in in recognition that there would be displaced pe uh, people. I mean, in take, those take, take a nation like Tuvalu, for example, 12,000 people. Mm. Could Aotearoa take 12,000 people? The question is if that would ever be the case, if you had 12,000 people at our doorsteps, do we have enough housing? 
Do, are we more, able more housing to, than they're going to have in Tuvalu? Will they? Will we be able to cope with the young people that come through in their education? Will the adults who come here? Will they have the skills to be able to earn a living in the jobs that are available at that time? That's a conversation, and who pays for that movement? That's a conversation that we've got to have with these superpowers, um, so that they're paying attention to the legacy they left behind and the harms that are subsequently being felt by small island states. Well, there are some fascinating and complex issues. I know you only arrived back late last night, so thank you very much for giving us your time. Thank you very much. Oh, Peter Williams, After the break, we're only halfway through the parliamentary term, but David Seymour is fast turning his attention to next year's election. And he's got some interesting words about the leader of the National Party. By way of example, the government has often justified its three waters reforms by pointing to Hawke's Bay, where the Havelock North gastro crisis killed four people and sickened thousands. But councils representing the wider region are now speaking out in opposition to the three waters. Reporter Fina Owen went to Hawke's Bay to find out why. know what that is so residents in those areas have been asked to log the colour, the pressure and the smell of their drinking water. Napier City Mayor Kirsten Wise. So Tamatea in Parklands is one of the areas that has been experiencing the dirty water and that's because their water comes from one of the bores that's high in manganese. But the council's onto it with new water bores almost ready to go. But beneath the city is an ageing storm drinking and wastewater system. Napier needs to spend at least $800 million on its waters but has only got half that money. So there is a shortfall in your budget to do all this work around water infrastructure. Surely the three waters plan will be good for Napier City. Well, ironically, the uh, central government model has actually set aside less money for investment in Napier. It's a third of the money that we're already committing. This is community assets. It's, it's ratepayer money that's been paying for this for generations and you can understand the nervousness about our community of losing control of that. Wairua Mayor Craig Little, he's known for his descriptions of three waters. I was told by others I shouldn't really swear on um, things but a load of sewage perhaps we'll call it. And well you know a lot about sewage don't you? Well I am the poster boy of sewage as they call me in Hawke's Bay. Sewage poster boy because up until recently his council pumped raw sewage into the Wairua River whenever there was a storm or a high rain event. Fines and public pressure, mainly from iwi, put a stop to that. We've gone from probably a non-complying council, we've just gone through a consent progress process, we had to get the local iwi on board and it's been huge. A huge three waters entity, he insists, won't fix their wastewater issues, but a simple government grant would. Wairua would have just one share in the new entity. It means nothing. You know, government's saying, you know, you're going to retain the ownership and she's all good. But no, you're not. There's nothing 
what governments make today can be undone by other governments in the future. There's, there's nothing saying, and you only have to look at the electricity reforms, how that didn't go too good, well, that water will be privatised. Quite often the pushback against three waters would be, you know, maybe a fear of co-governance, that relationship with, with Māori. Hey, I love co-governance. We do this. That's what we do every time we wake up in the you, morning. You and love co-governance, Yes, yeah, I do, because we, we, we've now got three uh, Māori wards in our council of six elected members. We've got the Matangiro board. We've sit, we've sit down with the local iwi, Tātou Tātou or Tawairo. Way further south on the road to Waipawa, we catch up with Central Hawke's Bay Mayor Alex Walker. We face the, the challenges of huge amounts of infrastructure and a really small population to pay for it and deal with it. So we have, um, we have five uh, areas where we have drinking water um, networks and we have five areas where we have um, wastewater treatment. And you divide that by the number of ratepayers and it's a real struggle um, by that small number. And so, three waters then, is that your answer? Well, there is no denying that size and scale is part of the solution for what we need and um, because we can't deal with this all on our own. Like the other councils, Central Hawke's Bay see the answer in regional ownership of water assets. But our solution has been taken off the table and so right now we're in a position where we have to engage in the parliamentary process that government is allowing us to do. All councils in the Bay are backing a local information campaign to get people to submit on three waters. I feel really sad for the families who lost people. I mean, it was a completely preventable situation, surely. And Rachel De Quinnan was one of the 5,000 residents of Havelock North struck down with gastroenteritis in 2016. She was hospitalised twice. It's been six years since the water debacle and I still won't drink from the tap. The contamination of drinking water was traced back to Campylobacter in two bores here on Brookvale Road on the outskirts of Havelock North. Bore 1 was right here. Of course the bores decommissioned, the concrete casing removed, but you could say that the road to these massive three water reforms began right here. Hastings District Council and its Mayor Lawrence Yule copped much of the flack for the crisis. Yule's consultancy is now running the anti-Three Waters group Communities for Local Democracy, although he told Q&A it's run by his business partner, not him. The current Hastings District Council hasn't joined that splinter group, but doesn't support Three Waters. But you're still against the three waters. So it seems like ideologically you're with that splinter group. We're saying we know what's best for us, we know that we want to look after our waters ourselves, we have invested in our waters here in Hastings, please government let us do it, we've done all of that. Ratepayers in the Hastings Havelock North area have contributed $82 million to overhaul their drinking water systems. Not everyone on the council is anti-three waters. It's not about ownership of water, it's about good governance of water and um, Māori bring good governance. Councillor Baden-Barber has been on the Three Waters Steering Committee from day one. When I've looked at all the information, when I've, when I've crunched all the numbers, when I've looked at the, the, the benefits back to, to communities, I think this is the way you have to do it, I, you know, I honestly do. Back in Havelock North, Rachel De Quinnan tells us she'd have more trust in an outside entity to manage the drinking water infrastructure. 
It's just sad that it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. It still does? Yes, it does. Barbara Driver. <laughs> Barbara Driver, Fina Owen with that report. <laughs> I'm still getting over that All Blacks performance last night. Stay with us. David Seymour is here after the break. Kia ora We welcome back. Given we're only halfway through the parliamentary term, you might have noticed we haven't been focusing much on the political horse race on Q&A this year, the who's up and who's downs. But to mark his party conference this weekend, ACT leader David Seymour has laid out his demands for his first 100 days in government. If, after the election, he's in a position to support a new national government, he's vowing to pressure Christopher Luxon to reverse many of Labour's reforms. David Seymour and I sat down on Friday and I asked why in recent months ACT has dropped in the polls. I think, according to the polls, our party's support is, is higher than it's ever been. Uh, ACT is on track to be a significant part of a new government. Um, I guess the question you could ask is, how did ACT's polling get to 16 17% uh, higher than any third party's been in two decades? I think the reason is that people want real change. They've had enough uh, with the costs going up, with the crime and the co-governance of everything. And the ACT Party has been providing uh, you know, a fearless and, can I say, articulate critique of where Labor's taking us. Yeah. Uh, we're also saying that it's not enough just to reverse or just to live with Labor's changes. Uh, they actually got to be reversed, because otherwise you get a ratchet effect and gradually the country becomes more Labor over time. OK, I'm going to talk about some of those changes mm. uh, you want to see made very shortly. You said you're polling higher than ever. Well, the Roy Morgan poll of November last year had you at 18.5%, mm. the same poll this week at 9.5%. Mm. So if you are being fearless, if you are <laughs> connecting with voters, why has your support halved? Well, I think the question is, you know, how, how did a party like ACT get to one in five voters no, 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 being prepared to I'm vote asking. for us? Come on, and that's, 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 why have you halved? That's the real question. No, no, I think, I'm the one asking the yeah, questions. Why, yeah. why is it halved? 18.5 to, to 9.5? Mm. Oh, look, I think, obviously, when people saw the National Party in deep trouble, uh, you know, people were saying, well, maybe we're going to decamp to act. Um, subsequently, some of them have gone back. I think, what again, what's important, is that you know, one in ten New Zealanders are stuck with ACT, uh, and that is you know, record polling, that is extra extraordinary mm. stuff, and it puts ACT in a better position going into an election, closer mm. to achieving our goals on behalf of our supporters who are fed up with crime and the cost of living and the co-governance of everything than we've ever, ever had. So that opportunity is enormous. What do you mm. think, at this stage, is the likeliest result for the election next year? Uh, look, I think that things will stay roughly where they are. Um, I think ACT will campaign well. Third parties get more exposure in elections mm. and, and tend to rise on average. So I think ACT will poll a bit better than it is now. Um, and you'll see a new government, about a quarter of which is ACT, mm. um, about three quarters of which is national. Um, and then the question really is not what is the composition, but what will that group of people do to deliver real change for New Zealanders, not just with these immediate issues of crime and the cost of living and the co-governance being forced into everything, but some of our longer term issues. You know, our productivity's fallen from third in the world to 31st in my dad's, in my dad's lifetime. Mm. Uh, we have just been overtaken in dollars per hour worked by workers um, by Lithuania, Slovenia um, and the Czech Republic. Estonia and Israel will overtake us next at this 
this rate. So how are we going to reverse productivity? How are we going to get kids to go to school and learn something so we don't have over a third of kids functionally illiterate by the time they're 15? And those longer term challenges is where Acts Heart and Soul has always been. And, and, and one of the predominant ways you want to achieve those changes is through reversing changes introduced by this government or the previous mm. Labour New Zealand First government. I'll read a quote uh, you've published to coincide with your party conference mm. this week. Five times National has followed, a Labor, into has followed Labor into government. Mm. Five times Labor's policies have comfortably mm. survived the change. We won't allow National mm. to lazily roll over Labor's policies mm. like it has in governments gone by. What do you mean by that? If you look at the last five times that we've had Labor National, Labor National, Labor National, I challenge people, it is practically impossible to think of a Labor policy that has been reversed by a national government coming in after it. Uh, National's modus operandi is to huff and puff and threaten to blow Labor's house down, but having campaigned from the right, they traditionally govern from the left. The ACT Party says that's just not good enough. If we believe that Labor and the Greens and New Zealand Versus policies were wrong, uh, we've got to have the courage to reverse them. And that's why I'm saying in the first 100 days, that's the litmus test, are you prepared to take some of this stuff on? Get rid of three waters, get rid of a Māori health authority. You should be prepared, for example, uh, to say that we are not going to have fair pay agreements. They'll be dead before their feet hit the ground. Uh, are we going to continue with mm. Section 7AA of the Oranga Tamariki Act, which says it's more important for kids uh, to be in their whakapapa than be physically safe? Those are the sorts of things that in the first 100 days, mm. uh, we should be reversing those changes and have the courage to say it's the right thing to do and just do it. And to be clear, mm. you've got a whole list of those changes you want to see reversed. But of course, you personally mm. supported the fifth national government. With the benefit of hindsight, looking back at that mm. time, how could ACT under your watch more effectively have used its position to advocate for change and advocated for reversals of previous Labour policy? I think there were two issues there. First of all, John Key and Bill English and their government, they always had two coalitions. Mm. So if you think about it, they could get a majority with National Plus Māori or they could get a majority with National Plus Act, sometimes United Future as well. So there were three or four in a bed and that was very difficult to get stuff done. We're looking at the current trajectory, and look, we've got a long way to go, mm. but we're closer than we've ever been. Um, you know, we've got to work uh, like in campaign uh, like we have to win, then start being prepared to win. And if it's a two-party coalition with you know, a dozen or more ACT MPs, then you end up with a much greater amount of leverage than we had back then. What we did do in that time, mm. uh, with one MP, was get charter schools and end-of-life choice. And those are two, I think, very significant uh, policy achievements for New Zealand. End-of-life choice is changing how people view death and giving relief to some of the most vulnerable in our society. Acted that with one MP. Charter think, schools ironically reversed by Labor. Yeah, and, and you know what? Labor shut charter schools for one day, opened them the next day, reopened them, said, you've got to use union Labor. You don't have to measure student achievement. Let, let me ask this. Yeah. In the history of MMP, which minor party, as part of a government support structure, do you think has been most effective in using its power to progress its agenda? Well, I think you do it by source of elimination. Which, uh, which yeah. party do you think? Look, look, I think New Zealand first. There's, there's nothing that future historians can point to that they can say they did that and it made New Zealand better. And that's a shame, but that's their epitaph. Uh, the Green Party, whether you agree with it or not, ACT, mm. ACT thinks we've got to get rid of the Zero Carbon Act. So there's better ways to fight yeah. climate change with the ETS. But, you know, that is a significant policy change that I think James Shaw can take some credit for. If you look at the Māori Party, the reversal of the Foreshore and Seabed Act, I think you've got to give them credit for that. But I have to say, if you look at the last government, um, what is it? 
about John Key and Bill English's policies mm. that Jacinda Ardern couldn't live with and had to reverse. Well, 90-day trials, three strikes, charter schools, all the significant changes that Labor couldn't live with were Act policies. So if you find yourself at the end of next year in a position where you are able to support a national mm. government, of all of those different policies mm. you want to see reversed, what are the priorities? What are the bottom line policies? Look, I think one of the most important things we can do is have a referendum on co-governance. We need to define the tr principles of the treaty democratically, not through the courts, and allow the people to vote on them. Because the treaty, I think, is a fantastic document. It says the Queen is sovereign, your rights are secure, mm. and your rights are all the same. Uh, now, we need to say that are, that is the principles of the treaty. Allow people to actually vote on it. So when people say we support the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, we can say absolutely fantastic because they are good principles. Uh, what we're doing now is dividing this country in ways that can be not only misguided but actually very dangerous. Mm. I think generally uh, we've got to ask ourselves how do we make sure that we remain a first world multi-ethnic liberal democracy. Right. If you think about each aspect of that they're all being eroded and endangered by the current direction. You've said that Christopher Luxon is driven by being Prime Minister. Mm. What did you mean by that? Oh, I think it's fair to say that traditionally, you know, the National Party has been driven by status. Um, they like the limos, they like being in government. The ACT Party, on the other hand, you know, to get the End of Life Choice Act done, I turned down the limo, turned down being a minister. The ACT Party was founded by people who care deeply about Do public policy. Do you think that, that Christopher Luxon is driven by the baubles of office? He's driven by um, the title. Yeah, look, I mean, you, you can try and put words... That's what I'm, you no, can no, try I'm asking put words, you. You, you. can put words in my mouth. But what I would say is that there's a reason we have you to... You were the one who said there, that there's, there's, they like all the nice things, the limos and, I think and everything that, else. I think that's true. It's been true of every national leader, and I think it's too early to judge Chris Luxon, but you know he's got to actually show why he's different uh, if he wants to avoid that description. Now, you know the ACT Party, on the other hand, cares deeply about public policy. So a lot of people like to talk about positions for politicians. I'm interested in talking about public policy for people. One last question then. People are constantly saying, oh, the Greens should open up some sort of conversation with nationals so that they have some sort of leveraging power if it comes to coalition negotiations in the future. Do you have any interest in talking to Labor about progressing your agenda? Not right now. I, I mean, they, they simply don't have the competence uh, in their ranks and their philosophy is anathema to us. So, no, you go back 40 years, there's been times when Labor has been the form team in New Zealand politics. Uh, we're not at that time now. It's a straight answer, if nothing else. That's David Seymour, the ACT Party leader. Cool, Mutu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. And nā mihi ki koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your messages and feedback. Hey te rā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.